Live with CDP Sports Talk, a weekly sports and entertainment podcast sponsored by Barry Cullen Chevrolet. Live on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, and LinkedIn. And on audio via Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, Anchor FM, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Radio Public, and TuneIn. Now, here's your host, Chris Palme. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 52 of Live with CDP Sports Talk, brought to you by Barry Cullen Chevrolet, 905 Woodlawn Road West in the Guelph Auto Mall. Check out barrycollin.com for the newest selection of new and pre-owned GM vehicles, or give them a call at 519-824-0210, or you can email them at info at barrycollin.com as well. I hope everyone's doing well on this Monday. May 8th, 2023, and by the way, Live with CDP Sports Talk is on weeknights at 8 p.m. Eastern on WQEE 99.1 FM in Metro Atlanta, the home of Southern Talk in sports as well. Guys, I uh, everybody, I'm looking forward to my guest today. Uh, his name is Bill Cott. He's an actor, comedian based out of L.A., originally from St. Louis, Missouri. And he was recently seen on Episode 9 of Netflix series, The Jeffrey Dahmer Story, as a Milwaukee Police Commissioner. And he's also made TV appearances such as The Third Rock from the Sun, Freak in, Freaks in Greek, uh, Popular, ER, Cross, Bars, uh, Cross Balls, uh, Weekends at the DL, uh, CSI, Wizards of Waverly Place, I believe he was on there for five years, 23 episodes, and it's always sunny in Philly, Philadelphia, I should say, and she spies Young Sheldon, and This Is Us, and Monk, and uh, also, if you're into theater, uh, Bill was in the, uh, he portrayed uh, Fred Mertz in I Love Lucy Live on stage as well, so I'm really honored to have Bill um, caught on my show today, and he was recently on my friend Grace Fraga's podcast as well. Just one second, guys, I'm going to bring on Bill. Good afternoon, Bill. How are you doing? Wonderful, Chris. Thanks for having me. Good. I really appreciate your time today coming on here. You've had quite the career um, starting back from St. Louis, Missouri. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Born in St. Louis. Um, traveled all around as a kid, um, but uh, we always came back to St. Louis. That's my hometown. I was there in 2015. I saw a Cardinals game at Bush Stadium, and I went up the arch in a little pod, 637 <laughs> feet. An amazing experience. It is. It, it could be, uh, for pe for anybody who's claustrophobic, it can be a really difficult ride to get in that tiny little elevator. It's like a space pod making their way up to the top of the city. Ironically, I, I don't like small spaces, but uh, the order I've gotten, it's now like, yeah, you know what? Why not? We'll try it. And, yeah. and, uh, and it's not like, uh, and it, it's not like uh, I'm going up, um, going up there and you can see how high you're going up there with the cement concrete and all that too. But it was quite the experience. Yeah, definitely. And you're also in the, it's, it's also one of those, it's also one of those things like, you know, how people say they've been in New York all their lives and never been inside the statue of Liberty. There's a yep. lot of St. Louisans who have not been up in the arch, you know, wow. we think it's a kind of a, a point of pride, but we're like, yeah, we're good at looking at it from it just from the river. We're good. <laughs> Yeah, Lisa, I uh, Toronto's got the CN Tower, and I went up there when it originally opened, and uh, 
I don't know if I, I should go back there at some point. I'm not a big fan of heights, but it's quite the view from up there. If I don't know if you've ever been to Toronto yet. Uh, I, I've like passed through Toronto. I think I was at the Toronto airport at one point on okay. the way to, uh, travels elsewhere. Ah. So, and you also uh, a member of the, uh, right now, a uh, hall of fame in 2010. What was that like being put into a hall of fame? That was, it, it's been pretty amazing. Um, it wasn't every, anything I ever expected to be like an honored alumni from my school. Cause a lot of the honored alumni are you know, famous doctors or people who went into law or, you know, uh, an honored profession that makes Rittner look good. And of course, uh, being a performer does the same thing. Uh, and, and after graduating, uh, Rittner has really, um, really, really made a commitment to the arts uh, in terms of a new auditorium and theater and uh, the, the choir, which I was also a big part of, and the orchestra. And uh, Rittner had our own um, radio station. So I started off as a, uh, a member of the radio staff. And so I, I was highly involved in my high school and uh, never put my high school days behind me. I still have a lot of good friends from high school and a lot of pride in Rittner. You know, everywhere I go, I talk about where I went to college and where I went to high school, uh, both schools in the middle of nowhere to some people, but, you know, very special to me. And uh, so I was honored with that. And it's been fun because um, Overland, which is the, the city that... Um, Rittner High is in, it's it's still kind of a small town. You know, it's in a big, bigger city, St. Louis, but uh, you feel like you're in a smaller town because, you know, my dad um, grew up in that neighborhood and uh, his, his mother grew up in that neighborhood. Um, and so a lot of my friends that went to high school with me, their kids go to that school. And uh, I was kind of honored uh several of, of my friend's kids, when they graduated from Rittner, um, they, they took their senior picture next to my picture in the, in the Hall of Fame because they're fans of Wizards of Waverly Place, that whole generation. That's awesome. Hey, yeah. right now, Bill, when I when I was younger, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I always loved sports and I loved talking, but they didn't mm -hmm. have all this technology podcast and all this stuff back right. then. And uh, now I wish I could go back 25 years. But right now I'm working on a career in radio and hopefully one day I will be in studio as an on air personality because I really have a passion for it. And mm -hmm. I guess what I'm trying to do is. I've told Graces, prove to uh, people that you can switch curves even at 50. Absolutely. It's never, it's never too late for another chance, a second chance at, at career, at love, at, you know, any of the passions in your life. And I think that's one of the exciting things about life is you're always discovering new chapters. Life is like a book. You're always going to find something new about yourself. We're here for self-discovery. Well said. And uh, one chapter of my life is closed. And in the last three years, I've been working hard on a new career. And uh, this is my 272, 272nd episode since uh, March of 2020. And uh, I've been lucky to get so many great guests on my show, uh, especially Grace and yourself. How did you end up uh, meeting Grace Fraga? Anyways, out of curiosity. Uh, through the world of comedy. When you when you work in comedy, you have so many friends in common anyway, that when you, um, you, know, you, you enjoy somebody else's work, it's easy to reach out to them because you know oh we have about 25 30 friends in common and so uh yeah so we you know we've we've been interacting you know uh with one another's social media for quite some time and recently we went out we went out for some froyo and uh and got to meet each other in person and uh she asked me to be on her podcast and we had a great time 
Yes, and I enjoyed watching that as well. And uh, I haven't, I've been to 13 states, but I've never been to California. So I, hmm. I told Grace my bucket list is to come out to LA and see some comedy shows and uh, to see her as well. And uh, I've made so many connections on this podcast as well. And, and one thing you mentioned too, uh, especially in the comedy industry, but this applies to the radio industry too. Uh, you meet so many people, and it is really a small industry because everybody seems to be connected in in the in the radio industry that I'm trying to get into as well. Oh yeah, yeah. I have a lot of friends in radio too, and they're they're really tight with one another. They stay in touch, and you know you know how often people in radio move around from city to city, so they they have a a network, a web of friends all over the country that work in the same industry. One of my favorite shows growing up was WKRP in Cincinnati. And yes. that song, that song to this day is one of my favorites. I think that was one of the reasons why I wanted to work at my uh, at my high school radio station. I was inspired by WKRP. You know, we didn't get a chance to drop any turkeys out of a helicopter. But uh, yeah, it was kind of like living that dream. We all wanted to be Dr. Johnny Fever or, uh, you know, Venus Flytrap. And Definitely. a lot of us had an opportunity to at a young age. When you were starting up, before I get to some questions, I wanted to ask you, Bill, uh, when you were starting up, obviously you went to Second City. Did you mm -hmm. ever come to Second City in Toronto? And when you were younger, did you ever get to see any of the S old SCTV series with the late John Candy and Eugene Levy and uh, Andrea Martin and Martin Short and et cetera? They were all my comedy heroes. My dad exposed us to uh, SCTV, Saturday Night Live, um, you know, all the all the comedy of the uh, the late 70s and early 80s that we were old enough to stay up for. And our bedtime kept on getting pushed later and later and later so we could see some of the crazy late night comedy. So we were all excited. We watched all the early episodes of SCTV that were on uh, PBS. And we were so excited when it got picked up by NBC as a late night show. And, you know, this, they, they recycled some of the old material, which we loved, and made fun of the fact that they recycled some of that material. They used the the whole uh, uh, Indira Gandhi, the <laughs> the parody of, uh, of Evita, which was so well done. It was such a great uh, example of how to do parody really well. You know, you, you, you base it on something that everybody knows. And at that point, they, they you know, Evita was a huge hit on Broadway, and there were many touring productions. So everybody had seen an ad for a production of Evita at that point, and they just nailed it with Indira. Um, so yeah, I was exposed to all that. I, I, I still have never been to Second City in Toronto. Um, studied in Chicago. We had a chance to be there for an opening night in Detroit one year and made some wonderful friends there. Um, uh, did Second City out here in Los Angeles. Now it's, um, you know, Second City is more of a virtual thing here in Los Angeles. So they, they still do uh, classes and jams and I, I believe even some shows online, but the, um, you know, the focus for Second City uh, in the U.S. has always been Chicago. And um, and now there's a Second City in New York, I hear, which they, they kind of rolled that out in an odd way. They like let everybody know, like the, the same day that they kind of like took uh, Los Angeles off the website, <laughs> they started announcing that there was going to be a, a New York Second City. But never have never have been to Toronto. I would love to. Is it still is it still there at the old firehouse? Is that what it's called? I think so. Yeah, I haven't been there lately. But uh, Toronto is basically our version of New York City or Chicago. Oh, yeah. It's just yeah, it's huge and uh, so many. We've had so many great Canadians in Canada as well. Everybody thinks mm -hmm. of Canada for hockey and beer and donuts, but we've had <laughs> so many uh, 
great comedians uh, and even actors from here as well. Yeah, I definitely associate donuts with Canada as well. But for me, it's always been comedy. You know, uh, I have a lot of friends and family who are big hockey fans. So there's, you know, there's that in common that, that everybody knows, you know, great hockey comes from Canada. But because of my exposure, you know, all of my all of my comedy idols were from, you know, for the, you know, there was also ones who had, who were Second City alumni, but the one, the first ones that I knew about from Second City were the, were the, the, the ones from the Second City Toronto, all the ones that you mentioned before. And John Candy was always one of my huge idols. So we spent a lot of time, a lot of time watching that. And of course, I love the comedy tradition in, uh, in Montreal, the Just for Last Festival, Just Pourir. Uh, I've been there several times myself and always have a blast. So, um, some of my favorite personalities in comedy come from Canada. Yeah. And the late John Candy passed away too soon. I think Absolutely. what, 40, 44 years of age in 1994. Wow. Wow. Hard to believe. Hard to yeah. believe. Yes. Before we get into some questions, you said something about hockey. Since you're from St. Louis, any chance you're a St. Louis Blues fan? I love watching the Blues play. Um, I've never really been, and I'm sorry to say this on your sports program, I've never been that big of a sports fan. Like, okay. I, I, I love sudden death. I love, you know, uh, big, you know, championship games and all that. Um, and, you know, I support I support the Blues probably over any other team that's out there. But I, I would say, like, you know, uh, my brother and my nephews and, you know, my friends back in St. Louis are much bigger Blues fans than myself. My, okay. my brother and I, I always do these jokes about how I pretend to know something about sports. So he'll get in a conversation about sports some some with somebody, and I'll chime in with some some stupid thing that I say, and you know, make it make makes it look like I know what I'm talking about, and it, it just upsets him to no end. So I, I, I could have faked I could have faked you out and pretended I was a big Blues fan, but he would call me out for doing it on a <laughs> on a podcast and radio show. I had their longtime public address announcer, Tom Cahoon, on a year ago, and he hasn't missed a game since wow. 1987. And uh, St. Louis. I graduated has, high school. Wow. Tom Cahoon, nice guy. And St. Louis has such a rich history of great broadcasters as well, like the late Joe Buck, Jack Buck, mm -hmm. and uh, Mike Shannon, who uh, did the Cardinals games as a player and an announcer yeah. for 50 years recently passed and away. Harry Carey got his start out there, too. That's definitely true. So, anyways, but Chicago um, owns him now, and I'm not going to yes, fight him on that. <laughs> that's true. He didn't spend that much time in Chicago compared to St. Louis. I think St. Louis was really? his longest run. Yeah. Wow. So, definitely. Yeah. Okay, we'll get to some questions, non-sports questions for you now, Bill. Um, can you tell my audience just in Ontario, I'm just outside of Toronto in a city called Guelph. Can you just tell mm -hmm. them a little bit about yourself? And when did you decide to, decided you wanted to pursue a career as an actor, comedian in the entertainment industry? Well, you know, ever since I was a kid, I knew that I loved performing. I would do magic and impressions and comedy for my family or for show and tell at school. Wherever I had an opportunity to perform, I stepped up and did it. And when they were first starting to do uh, video cameras and make them a little bit more accessible, I remember there was a black and white video camera that they had set up in our gym class. And they were just getting video footage of kids on the balance beam or something like that. I can't remember what it was. And I kept on sticking my head in frame and waving at the camera. And I, I was so excited to be on a TV, even though it was just a little monitor, an in-house thing. But I've always wanted to do that. And I've, I've had a chance to do uh, dramatic acting and comedic acting. And now I'm trying to use it for some, you know, for some, um, some higher purpose too. 
that's why I, I started uh, an organization with some friends of mine. My friend Cheryl uh, kind of spearheaded the project. It's called Camp We Can Too. And it's for kids of all abilities to have an opportunity to, uh, to learn more about the arts, to learn more about improv. We're going to be teaching improv, acting, and dance. And if people want to find out about that, they can go to campwecan2.org. Or I think it's just wecan2.org. I'll double check that. I'll give you a link that you can use officially. Perfect. Because I was going to just ask you that question. And that's another thing I've learned about my podcast show, too, is listening mm -hmm. is huge. Listening is just as important as speaking. Absolutely. So. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So the way I started off as, as an actor was I would I would I would do um, plays and and uh, productions of any kind in, in high school and college. And then I moved to Chicago to study at Second City. Um, and then they, they, they found me for the Dana Carvey show and my career was off and running. What was that experience like being in the Dana Carvey show? It was amazing. You know, I was a huge fan of Dana Carvey, so it was great to be able to be on a show that was built around him. I had a, I had a, um, uh, Dana Carvey as the church lady poster in my dorm room. People who knew me in college knew that my, uh, my first year at Central Methodist. And, um. So I, I was just thrilled and I was a little starstruck because, you know, Dana was one of those people that I, you know, I saw get his start on SNL and, you know, blew up into stardom. And, you know, everybody who was on the show at that time, Phil Hartman and John Lovitz and Jan Hooks, um, just so many amazing performers of that era that uh, and some of them were guests on the Dana Carvey show, too. So I was starstruck when they would come in and. Um, very, very, I, I, if I had to say one word that summed up my time at the Dana Garvey show, I would say starstruck. Were you a little bit nervous as well? Yeah, that, that's what I mean by it. I, you know, it, I, 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 I felt as if, you know, here's your opportunity. You get to work with these folks. And I was still so shy and so nervous to, to put myself out there. Of course I was putting myself out there. I was part of the cast. I was part of the writing staff. Um, but I think it's, you know, I was very intimidated in that environment. And so it was, it was a good experience, but it was a bit overwhelming. And how old were you at that time? I was 26 years old at the time. And, um, this next question I wanted to ask you, Bill, is, mm -hmm. uh, who were some of your other influences as comedians and actors? And, uh, when did you start learning to do the writing aspect of it? Um, some of my early idols, uh, of course, like I mentioned, John Candy yes. earlier was a huge idol for me. Uh, Martin Short, Eugene Levy, um, Catherine O'Hara, Andrea Martin, just everybody that you mentioned from SCTV okay. were huge. I, I, I like doing characters. I like doing, you know, um, larger than life, but still grounded in reality sort of characters. And so that, that was my focus. And that's, that's, that's how I create characters. I, or, you know, uh, that's how, when I'm working, I, the first thing I want to know is like, you know, how, how deep does this character get and how relatable is this character? So um, those were some of the early influences. And the second part of your question was. I'm just trying to remember who are some of your influences, comedians and actors. Oh, you would also, yeah, those, those are some of the actors uh, yeah. and, 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 uh, and improvisers. Um, and you, you had asked about writing, how, I got, the, how I got the, into writing. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I loved to write as a kid. I was, 
I was often asked to sit after for the next class to read whatever I had written for the students. So that was one of my first quote unquote performances uh, ever in front of other people that weren't my parents and their friends or my family. And uh, I liked it. I liked that people were uh, enthusiastic about my ideas, that they enjoyed how I read them. And so I started writing when, when I was just a kid. And my brother and my sister and I, my dad was a writer. And so he gave us a cassette tape, uh, a cassette recorder. And we would use that to record episodes of SCTV so that we could play them back and, you know, mimic them and laugh at our favorite moments. But we would also make our own audio comedy. We, we had a sound effects record that we'd use extensively, incorrectly. And, uh, you know, we scratched up a lot of records trying to make them work out as sound effects and everything. We, you know, invented our own sound effects. Like um, if there was a monster, you know, crunching into somebody's bones, we'd take a mouthful of like peanuts, you know, roasted peanuts that are still in the shell and, and crunch them into the mic. And so I, I, I knew I wanted to write as well. I, I, I'm, I'm refocusing myself as a writer now, too. I'm, I'm developing some projects that I'm not talking about right now, but I, I do really enjoy writing. It's a great way to, ex to express yourself. Uh, also, also working on a, on a book about improvisation. So there's, I'm, I'm, I'm exploring writing again from a couple different angles, but I've always enjoyed doing it. Um, I, am, I'm, you know, I joined the Writers Guild, uh, the Writers Guild of America East, when I performed uh, in the Dana Carvey show. And then after that was over, I, I didn't book a lot of other professional work as a writer uh, in the industry. I wrote for, for several websites after that. And I also wrote for um, a company called mixme.com. That was, um, we would create individualized comedy content for people kind of specialized. And it was, some of it was prefab prefabricated. So um, we would have to record a bunch of different options for these things. And we'd have to write a bunch of different options for them. And then people could personalize jokes and songs to send to one another. I also wrote for uh, Comedy World Radio, which was a radio network. And I was on a show with uh, Amit Zappa and Kennedy. Some of us remember Kennedy from, from uh, MTV back in the days before she became a uh, political reporter. So that's, that, that's a lot of, that's, that, that's the bulk of the writing that I've done. And a lot of it, I, I write and just kind of keep to myself or start and get halfway through. And then I get pulled back into another acting project. But as you know, uh, here in uh, the States right now, we're going through a writer's strike. Yes. And so um, the, this morning I joined the writers for the, for my first day on the uh, picket lines. They've been out there for the past week or so. Uh, when the uh, when the studios could not come to an agreement with the writers about fair pay and uh, better structure and kind of protections against people using artificial intelligence to replace writers, because you're never going to be able to replace the soul that a human being can bring to a product and a project. And uh, so I'm a little dehydrated because I stayed out late last night performing at the Magic Castle, and then I woke up and went straight to the picket line right in front of Universal Studios. And I've been there many times for auditions and for work and, and even for the theme park with my daughter and friends. And it's always been a fun experience there. But it took on a little bit of a different tone today because the the studios, I feel, need to recognize what writers bring to the table and compensate them fairly. 
one thing I wanted to ask you too is writers are so critical uh, with TV series or people don't realize how important writers are, period. Yeah, they see their favorite celebrities say things and they're not always aware that there's a writer writing almost every line they say. Even when things come off, you know, mostly ad-libbed, there is a structure behind it all. And there's writers putting that together and trying to give a framework to everything. So there's a, a frame of reference and people understand, uh, can greater understand other points of view. And, you know, it, it all starts with a writer. If, if, if we don't have the work of the writer, we can't move forward. And, and too often, um, this industry, film and television, tends to devalue the writers, even though they know they can't exist without them, but they devalue them and they treat them disrespectfully often and um, dismiss some of their ideas, discount them, change their work in many times. Once they get their hands on it, there, there's things that they can do. And cer cer there's certain protections against that, but not against all of it, for sure. And uh, just like everybody else, writers need to have health insurance. Writers need to be able to pay the bills and to support their families. And one thing too, Bill, um, I'm doing camera work right now. And uh, mm -hmm. everybody, when they do broadcasts, the on-air guys get all the credit and stuff. But people don't realize in a, in a broadcast, not just sports or whatever, but mm -hmm. camera operators, the audio guys, the graphic guys, the people behind the scenes are just as important as the on-air guys, just like with writers on TV shows and in movies. Their writers are huge. That's why one of the strongest unions in entertainment is IATSE. You know, all, all, the, all the people working behind the scenes to make everything happen. They flick all the switches. They aim all the cameras, like you said. They do it all. And this is the first strike, what, in 15 years? Yes, it's I been a long it. time, and it's, it's, it's way overdue. Uh, every time a new technology comes out, the studios tend to take an idea that it's like, oh, this, this can't, um, we, 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 we don't know if this whole idea of DVDs is going to catch on or cable TV or streaming, and we all know it's going to, and they, they never um, or seldom find a fair pay structure for all that. Because the writers, just as much as the performers, just as much as everyone, uh, deserves a piece of the pie when when those residuals come through. Because once you have a finished product, they can just put it out there and keep on profiting from it. And everyone should share in those profits, especially the people who are creating it. 100%. And Bill, and that's why I love doing this podcast show. Every guest I have come on here, I learn something new all the time. And uh, thank you for sharing that behind the scenes of you a writer. Bet. Thank you. Definitely. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask you another question and then I would like to show your uh, demo reel if, if that's okay, Bill. Great. I would love that. Okay. This question I wanted to ask you is how did you end up with second city comedy in Chicago in the early 1990s? And what was it like working alongside Steve, Steve Carroll, St St Steve uh, Colbert, Tina Fey and Amy poor, who are legends in the industry? Yes. Thank you. Um, I, I went there. I was a bank teller in St. Louis, also working in an improv troupe with friends who had trained in Chicago and brought their skills back to St. Louis. We're performing at a place called Catch a Rising Star. I did that for about a year. And then, you know, I knew that I had to go to study in Chicago, just like at a certain point in your life, you know, you need to go away to college or, you know, you need to start your trade, whatever you do in life, you know, there, you really have to take that next step. And so I applied for a bank job in Chicago and got a bank job rather quickly and started taking classes at Second City. And my very first teacher was Stephen Colbert. 
So I that was a great introduction to the world of improv. And then later I was able to perform with him on the Dana Carvey show. And yeah, there was, you know, just like the amazing talent and the the people that have that have come out of there from just the time that, you know, that I would watch all these people on stage. Um like um Nia Vardalos from uh, my big fat Greek wedding, who I believe she is, she is a Canadian. I believe she's from Toronto originally. I could be wrong, but uh, I will definitely back me up on that. that. Yeah, I will. I will Google that up after. And if I'm wrong, then I'm wrong. But uh, I, I believe that she was, but she was a, you know, I, when I first saw her perform, it was at second city ETC. So, you know, I would see performers like her, Amy Sedaris, uh, Stephen Colbert, Steve Carell, um, you know, I'd see alumni come back like Richard Kind and um, and and some of the huge names, you know, that kind of like made me shudder when I was a kid. You know, Dan Aykroyd would come through and Bill Murray. And it was just it was mind blowing when these people would come through that, you know, it's like, wow, they started off right here. They started off doing the same thing. And so I, I after I finished uh, training, I auditioned for the touring company and I toured with, you know, folks that, you know, some some of, you know, like, you know, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Rachel Dratch, and um, other folks that you may or may not know, but you've certainly seen their face um, on television, or you've seen their name in a scroll of writers' names, you know, who've created those things that we were talking about earlier. That's why it's so important to give those folks a recognition. And um, it was one of the best experiences for me creatively, because there was always a place to put your ideas up. And it was all, you know, we would take somebody's idea, uh, suggestion, and then, you know, we'd riff on that and bring our own ideas to the table. And we were able to create some really, really fun sketches, some of which are still touring to this day. And that's, that's another thing I love about Second City, or at least back in the day, there was so much emphasis on what we called archival material. Uh, and to know that your material would live on. And that young folks who were just starting it out would get a chance to try on that material, figure out what it's like to mount material like that, how to find the delivery, how to block it, how to uh, how to interpret the text and find new meaning as time goes on. And certain events, certain people, certain places take on a new meaning. How much has the uh, comedy industry changed in the last, I, I guess, 20 years and with the uh, political correct society now across the world? A lot of things have changed in comedy and I'll get to the notion of political correctness and, and, and why I think that's actually a healthy thing for comedy. Okay. Um, but one of the main ways that it's changed is that uh, improv has become a much more accepted art form. More people are doing it and learning it. When I started off, you would really have to go to Chicago or you'd have to go to Los Angeles and study at the Groundlings. Um, you could take a class in college, but to really get um, an education in improv, you'd have to do that. Now in almost every city, you can find, even you know, in rural Missouri, there's a group of people that get together um, whenever they can and, and practice their skills and you know, I've met so many, so many groups and so many improvisers from all over, all over the country and all over the world. Wherever you go, there will be improv. I was just in in Portugal this last summer, teaching improv and learning a little bit more about clowning and some some, some kinds of stage movement, like viewpoints and Laban. And 
there there was already a thriving improv scene. They have a international improv festival there. And when I started comedy, when when you would say improv to people, they they would think you were talking about the stand up club, the improv, because. Even then, stand-up was only getting the sort of exposure of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and uh, David Letterman's show. And there wasn't a lot of exposure for stand-ups. But then, right around the time that I went away to college was when the the whole stand-up boom happened. And so there were stand-up clubs all across the country. And things have gone, I think, from from stand-up to improv to largely now. there's There's an interesting movement where a lot of people are doing storytelling where there's more emphasis on the stories that they're telling and the ideas that they're sharing. And it's still funny. It's so funny because it's human. And when I teach improv, I always tell people that, you know, the first three letters of the word humor and human are the same. And that's because what we're laughing at is the human existence. So uh, those are some of the ways in which comedy has changed. Different forms of comedy have become more more acceptable and accepted. People, I think, want to hear less and less laugh tracks in their comedy, although there's a little bit of a resurgence to three-camera sitcoms lately, but there's always been a lot of one-camera sitcoms that are shot as a movie, like The Office and Community, Parks and Recreation, which are all hilarious shows and didn't need a laugh track. When the show MASH started off, one of my favorite shows from when I was a kid, they didn't think it was appropriate to have a laugh track while there's a war going on. Uh, but later they added more laugh track and more laugh track and they would dial it down. They would never have a laugh track in the operating room for obvious reasons, uh, out of respect for the symbolic loss of life of people in combat. So uh, to talk about uh, political correctness, I hear so many people say like, oh, you can't say this or you can say that. Yeah, you can. You can say anything you want, but you had best be able to back it up. You had best be able to say, I'm saying this because it's true, not because I'm punching down or trying to hurt some group of people, um, you know, whether it be race, religion, um, ethnicity, personal beliefs, uh, income. You know, it's it's not funny to make fun of people who, who might be unhoused. And it's not funny to make fun of people who are without a job or may not be able to have certain advancements in life. I think comedy is there to uplift. It's there for the common person. And, um, and so when we say political correctness, it can mean a bunch of different things. We can say it means the word police. Some people are afraid that it means the word police. And maybe there are some words that we should re-examine before throwing them out there. We may not be aware of who's, who's being uh, marginalized when we use those words or, you know, um, where we find our sources of humor or how people are, uh, you know, um, how people should consider interacting with other people. And people talk about this person was canceled, that person was canceled. Everybody who was who was uh, referred to as having been canceled is back up and touring and performing in places again without even having to back up the things that they said. Roseanne Barr hasn't been canceled. She's out there. She's working. Louis C.K., you know, he, he, when people talk about him being canceled, he wasn't canceled because of his material. He was canceled because of uh, his behavior personally. But even that hasn't kept him from performing at, you know, I think he performed at Madison Square Garden or something like that, these giant venues. So um, I really feel that there's, you know, people want to say that, you know, there's a reason that their comedy isn't hitting with people or connecting with people. And they feel like, oh, there'd be, there's this cancel culture. Um, 
I don't really think cancel culture is a thing. I think it's an excuse for people who want to who want to remain uh, in the same material they've been doing for the last 20 years and they're afraid to grow. They're afraid to stretch themselves or afraid to stretch their boundaries to question their own beliefs. I've had to face a lot of my own beliefs that I, you know, or, you know, prejudices that you that, that you grow up around and you don't even don't, you're not even aware that you're biased because you you think you're open-minded but you you realize there are little things in in daily culture and daily speech that we're not even aware of that that holds people back or makes them feel like they're not welcome at the table. Bill, I want to say thank you for explaining that to me as well and uh, that's a great way of looking at things as well. Uh, before we get to your demo reel, how hard was the uh, comedy industry obviously acting in the uh, writing affected by the pandemic for a couple of years? It, well, I think it, it allowed people to start creating on their own. They didn't have to wait for a studio. I myself started doing stuff on Facebook. I did these things called live jives, which is just, it started off as me making oatmeal and talking to my friends and started building more of an audience and more people started watching. And once the pandemic hit, I was like, I should just do live jives and do a lot of performance with that. But then we were also able to do improv. We had to deal with the lag at first. Because improv is all about being right on top of the other person. And, you know, in the, the early days of the pandemic, there was still a big lag with Zoom. Pardon me, with Zoom. Because everybody was jumping on Zoom and it would, it would crash. And then there were security concerns. But people learned how to improvise online in different ways. And we were using our screens in different ways. And people who never had a chance to, to collaborate before had an opportunity. My friend Jay Suko started doing, I think it was five minutes a day or maybe even more with a different improviser from all over the world every day. And that couldn't, couldn't have happened and probably wouldn't have happened without the pandemic. So obviously a huge loss of life. And there was a lot of tragedy involved, but out of every tragedy comes another triumph. Human nature is there to, to move beyond these obstacles and to, to use it as a force for creation, something that spurs us into doing something new. And I, I know that was the case for me. I met, I met people who are my friends now that I never would have met had I not been doing my, my live jives on Facebook. And I still do them. They're more of an inspirational thing. I don't do my comedy on them as much. I try to be funny and amusing when I talk to people, but I used to do characters every day at about uh, 2 p.m. or 4 p.m. Every day I'd come on and do characters and have it be improv based. So uh, I definitely affected people. And also people wanted to reach out more to other people because you couldn't. You couldn't see other people, especially in those early days when we didn't know. When we thought, okay, we'll just lock it all down. Nobody go anywhere. And nobody did for a while. There were some places where people took it more seriously than others. But we didn't go anywhere. We had our food delivered, stayed in, um, did the best we could, shared with neighbors. Somebody needed this and we didn't have it. Or somebody wanted to start planting fruits and vegetables. Somebody else would have some dirt in in the in their garage or whatever, and they could help someone else out. I think I think the pandemic, uh, for all the tragedy, really turned some people who didn't think of themselves as creators into creators. That would be me. Yeah. 
That's when I started my uh, great example. podcast is when the pandemic struck and uh, mm-hmm. it helped me get through it. And uh, I met Grace and I've met so many wonderful people doing this podcast show the last three plus years. Well said, yeah. Bill. Thank you. Um, are you still okay for time? I was going to show um, uh, just a, a, a four minute demo uh, video. I sure am. I just want to update everybody with the, with the okay. website for, for we can too. Yes. Kids. Yes. Yes. Uh, it's just we can too. W E K A N T U. So it's it's almost spelt like you know, um, it, like it's a, a, a city or a lake in Wisconsin somewhere. You know, like those camps all, all have those uh, those wonderful names. Uh, and so um, we kind of decided to name it that. Um, and uh, it's W E K A N T U dot org. Perfect. And I will make sure I mention it again as well, Bill. And uh, awesome. I think Thank it's you. I think it's great to give back. And I've done a lot of volunteering and charity work uh, over the years here as well. And uh, mm-hmm. it's just nice to give back to other people. It is. Especially kids. I was a big brother volunteer here uh, for 16 years. So That's it, was wonderful. A, it was a great experience. And uh, yeah. I've always done volunteer work. And I just think what you're doing is great as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chris. Okay. I'm just going to play your demo reel if that's okay. And yep. if you got a couple it's more minutes. always okay. You can play my demo reel anytime. All right. I guess I'm Canadian. I'm too polite sometimes. No such thing. Oh, hey. Morning. My pears. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I hope you don't mind me asking, how's William doing? I haven't seen him lately and I was starting to get worried. I know his health wasn't all that good. Uh, William died last week in Memphis. Wow. Wow. Well, he always wanted to get back there. I didn't realize you two had gotten to know each other. Yeah. On his morning walks, we got to talking. You know, people don't stop just to talk anymore, you know? We became friends. <laughs> he always asked about my daughter. I'm sorry for your loss. This neighborhood will miss him. Did you kill your wife, Margaret Henderson? I did not. Gus? He's telling the truth. Are you my biological father? Of course not. You know I adopted you. That registers as true. Okay, well, then there's something wrong with your machine. All right, yes. I'm your biological father. That's true also. We had one night of passion, and then she disappeared. That's true. Uh, I was already married to Adelaide, or I would have married your mother. That's a lie. These alleys are magnets to the glutton. They come off the boats like locusts. What would you say you like most about Puerto Rico? The bowling alleys and the casinos. Of course, she likes the duty-free. Well, the more you spend, the more you save. Have you seen a lot of the island? Oh, we don't leave the hotel. It isn't safe. But you're having fun. Oh, yeah. A lot, a lot of fun. Hold on now. Looks like the incident of January 10th is not covered under Acts of God. What? What? A tree branch fell down on our car. How is that not an act of God? Well, according to the inspection, 
your tree wasn't trimmed properly. Did you ever have it looked at by a certified arborist? Oh, I'm sorry. We're in between arborists right now. What are you talking about? Here's the deal. Unless you trimmed your tree branches to the acceptable length, it's negligence. And how are we supposed to know what the acceptable length is? I'm just going to guess here, but I'm thinking it's the length of a branch that when the wind blows, doesn't fall down on your car. Whoa, Nelly. You're in here way too often. Hey, dude, that's your call, not mine. Miss Russo, I used to fancy myself a little bit of an outlaw like you. I used to belly up to the soda fountain and have a glass of all the flavors mixed together. They called it soda danger. I called it breakfast. That all changed when the doctor called it a peptic ulcer. Do you see where I'm going with this? Your Christmas cookies smell so good. Would you like a few? Maybe one or two. Well, here you go. Mmm, our town has come alive again. Christmas is coming soon. Um, and, um, did I tell you I got a watch? My aunt sent it to me. Not my Aunt Holland, my Aunt Ruth. And, um, when I talk to Karen, should I wear my shirt up like this? Or down, or or up, or possibly tucked in. Definitely Russian, very thick, just off the boat. He had a big bag. It all happened so fast. Then what'd you do? Lindsay, we have it to cola. Uh, just a minute. In Espanol. By Grabthar's hammer, by the sons of Warvan, I shall avenge you. Because it sounds like you're mocking me. No, I'm taking you very seriously, which is why I'm going to examine you as soon as you get undressed. You just want to see me naked. I want to examine you. Yeah, examine me naked. Can I get a male doctor in here? A straight one? That clip was courtesy of your um, IBM channel. Just give me one second. Oops. Oops sorry about that. That was courtesy of your IMDB.com mm -hmm. channel. Thoughts on some of those roles uh, that you've uh, played over the years, and especially uh, the mailman. And uh, I believe you won an award from the United States Postal Service for the portrayal of that character. Yeah, well, I was honored with an episode of uh, or, or an issue of their um, magazine for the mail carriers of the United States, which was wonderful. I was very honored. They thought it was a very realistic portrayal. And, you know, people people tend to have a a personal relationship with their mail carriers. Some people do, some people don't. It's often a reflection of, of who you are as to how well you might know your, your mail carrier or not. But I, there were so many people that were touched by that story. And um, I, you know, I felt blessed to have been a part of it just for that, for that one episode. I, I, so many, so many different thoughts and memories, you know, flood back to me when I look at that reel. One of which is another time that I was, and I, I think that was one of the times that I flew through Toronto was when I was working on the Santa Santa Paws 2, the Santa Pups, which was shot in Fernie, British Columbia. And that was really, really fun. Had some great times, some great memories there. Um, Neil Flynn, in that episode of The Middle, a lot of people know him for his work on, on that show and on Scrubs, but <laughs> I met him when we were both performers at the Second City, and he's a brilliant improviser. 
Not many people know that. And most of his work has been comedic. He's also a very gifted dramatic actor. So those are some of the thoughts that popped out at me right away when I was looking at it. And also to, to look at Selena and see how young she was on those early episodes of Wizards of Waverly Place. Uh, it's amazing how far she's come. And, you know, the, the kids on that show are now, you know, getting up there in their age. They're in their 30s now. And it's it's tough for me to comprehend that, you know, I was, when I first started doing Wizards of Waverly Place, I was about 40 years old. And so they're they're only about 10 years away from the age that I was when I was their, their principal on the show. So much time has passed. It's really, really interesting to look at, you know, at your body of work and see how how much you've grown or shrank sometimes in my case because I was I weighed a lot more in some of those uh, episodes, some of the work that I've done. And the way that I've changed as a performer, things that were going on in my life behind the scenes when all of those things were shot. So it really, uh, I don't I don't go back and look at my reel that often because that's something for other people to look at. But it really gave me a chance to go back and look at that and have some of those memories wash over me. How did you end up getting the role on on there as Mr. Lara Tate and uh, overall working alongside Selena Gomez and what did you enjoy? What did you enjoy the most about the show and the role that you were on? I believe for twenty three episodes over five seasons. I believe. Yeah, let's take that question by question. So okay. the the first uh, the first thing you asked was about uh, how I got the role. Yes, and I was I had uh, bought a house back in St. Louis, my hometown, and was living there and would would fly back in for auditions uh, or put them on tape if I didn't need to, and I you know could fly back later. And I was flying out for a movie called All About Steve with Sandra Bullock to audition for that. And I made it all the way to the director's cut. And he wanted to meet with me. And so I did that. This, this, this trip was all about trying to get in this movie with Sandra Bullock. And then I got a call at the last minute asking me to audition for Wizards of Waverly Place. And I was like, listen, I'm very, very busy with this other audition. I don't want to overwhelm myself. I don't think I have time for it. Um, and they said, just promise us that you'll do it. And so I rushed over there as soon as my plane landed. I was late. I was about two hours late for the audition. I called in and said, well, I'm I'm two hours late, so I'm sure, you know, I should just head home. And they're like, no, they're in there waiting for you still. So I went in there, read for the role, and I got it. So um, they said I was one of the, one of the um, quickest people hired for a Disney Channel show at that time. Because before wow. I left the lot, they had called and asked my availability for the for the show for the first episode, and I kind of had a feeling when I did that first episode that my character was going to recur. So, um, so some of my favorite moments working on the show were actually behind the scenes. We would have we would always start every week's work with a table read. We'd sit down and everyone would open their their scripts and they'd read through the episodes. Um, and this was something interesting that I, that I didn't know that I, I found out there's a, there's a podcast called Wizards of Waverly Pod where, uh, David Deloise talks about, you know, he has a, um, uh, he was, I think dyslexic in some form. So he would have to read the scripts in advance. And he talks about that several times on their podcast, uh, to prepare himself for that and then read at the table read. I had no idea. He would always come in there and kill it every time, knock it out of the park as did everybody. 
even those rough drafts would get huge response because everybody loved being there. Everybody was supporting one another's work. There would be a lot of rewrites over the week, but only because everybody, you know, the the writers would hear the same jokes over and over and like, ah, I think I can write that better. And so they'd write a new joke or change the joke or throw out the joke because it wasn't getting the same laugh as it was five days before. But those table reads were so fun because that was when it was all stripped away. It was just us reading the script. Um, and it would always be everybody arriving at the table together. They would always have these great breakfasts. So it's almost like getting together for a family brunch. That was always my favorite part of the show was kicking off the week with those table reads. And then just, it was really like a family. And if, if you listen to that podcast, that's what, they, that's what um, uh, David Deloise and Jennifer Stone talk about so much was the element of family behind that show. You know, there were people playing as if they were in the same family, but that cast truly, truly became a family. They were there for one another. They supported one another. They still do. And the, um, the first season was taped before it was ever released. So nobody knew if it was going to be a hit and it was the sensation from episode one. But nobody was treating anybody like stars on the set. Everybody was, you know, there was no ego. And there, and that luckily that trend continued because nobody felt comfortable throwing out their egos because it was this ensemble production. And it became about that. And it it, it maintained that up until that last season where all of a sudden thing, things were fractured into different storylines and not everybody interacted with everybody in every episode. But it really, really was an egoless, friendly family environment that just didn't pay so well. <laughs> is there any chance of a reunion in the future? Reunion there is talk. There's talk about a reunion. People have, you know, all, all the major players, all the main cast has said they're they're down for it. They were very interested in doing it. Um, there are ideas out there. People have you know, thrown out some ideas and suggested what, what it would look like. But I, I think there's an effort to make sure that if, if there is a reunion of some kind, which would be so tough to work with everybody's schedules at this point, but if there were a reunion, uh, it would, it would have to make sense. It would have to be making a statement as well. It would have to, and there's a great episode with uh, Peter Marietta, who was a showrunner for Wizards of Waverly Place, an idea that he had for it. So I won't spoil that. I'll tell everybody to go to Wizards of Waverly Pod and check that out. But it, it builds on the idea of what what really was one of the earliest um, interracial families on television. A family that was, you know, half Latino and or Latinx and 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 half uh, and half uh, Italian, Jerry Russo. So. Uh, that's that's part uh, that's part of what Peter Marietta's um, idea for what what he what he thought could be a possibility, and everybody's got their ideas and every everybody's thinking about it. You know, Todd Greenwald, the creator, I'm sure he has ideas about what he would like to see done with it, and I guess it would take everybody getting together and really making an effort towards making it happen and find the right time for it and find the right timing and and get everybody together and you know, let it happen. Have you been on the podcast show yet? And do you still keep in touch with uh, Selena? I have not spoken to Selena in so long. And I honestly think that if I, 
if I reached out to her, I don't, I don't think it would take that long for her to get back to me. She's that sort of person. She's very genuine. But no, I, I haven't had a chance to keep in contact with her. I, I keep in contact with a lot of people from the show. I was just recently on uh, an episode that has not yet aired, uh, which is a Waverly Pod. They had me on there. It was really great seeing David and great seeing Jennifer. And we also saw Josh Sussman, who I think his his interview was online, but I got to see him in that. And Peter Marietta was in studio the same day that I was recording. It really is fun to to get a little bit of that magic back. No pun intended. I just find the older you get, the faster time goes as well. Hey, uh, Bill, are you sure. okay for one more quick question? Sure. I can talk to you for five hours, but I know you don't have five hours. So um, yeah. this one I wanted to ask you about, because these guys are legends. Can you just tell us about your comedy work with the, the legendary uh, Fairley Brothers? That was a great experience. So the movie The Ringer was written by Ricky Blit, who was one of the writers from Family Guy, directed by Barry Blaustein who wrote the original screenplay for Coming to America and produced by the Fairley Brothers. And the Fairley Brothers took a very, very strong hand uh, in, in being on, on set for the whole production. They, they, they saw what was being built there and they wanted to support it in every way they could. And, you know, complete part of their vision is too. So there was a lot of people's visions uh, merging and trying to really create something fun that was respectful towards Special Olympics. And um, the Farrelly's told us on day one, we don't want to hear that you had uh, a funny idea after the fact. Feel free to improvise. As a matter of fact, we spent, I think it was two weeks before we started rolling on that, on that film down in Austin, Texas, training, learning how to do the Special Olympics events, but also improvising. We would, we would find new moments within the script and then find moments that weren't part of the script at all and we just improvise and some of that stuff wound up in the screenplay some of it was just a fun memory some of it inspired other ideas but the the idea that anything could happen was definitely part of that uh also in a very healthy sense it was competitive because uh the Fairleys like to uh they like to make little side bets here and there and so they would uh they would uh you know um have bets about how many times somebody could catch a football or how far they could throw a football or how fast somebody could run. Um, and uh, I think, uh, I think Johnny Knoxville had like a, a race between one of the actual special Olympians and was just like left in the dust. The guy was so fast. So there was a lot of moments like that where it's just like, Hey, we're here to have fun. I was, I think I've truly been blessed to be on a couple different projects where people really felt that they were part of something that was deeper than just like we're working on this show where they were like personal connections. I'm still in touch with several people from the ringer to this day, uh, especially John Taylor who played Rudy. He talks to me all the time and uh, had a chance to visit with him back in New York when I was uh, coming back from Portugal that I mentioned earlier, spent, spent a couple weeks in New York and was able to spend some time with John. And that was great. That's awesome. And uh, and um, before we wrap this up, what was it like playing the legendary character Fred Mertz and I Love Lucy uh, live on stage? That was a blast. So um, there was this vision that the producers had of taking episodes of I Love Lucy and stitching them together into a full musical production. And they were going to do several. They had the rights to all the episodes. So if they had wanted to, they could have run in perpetuity episodes that were based on 
the actual episodes of I Love Lucy. And then, you know, sometimes we take a song that existed in one episode and put it in another. And we did uh, live TV commercials that were, you know, in, in a sense, they were straight up commercials from the 50s. But they were also self-parody because of, you know, the, the, the gee whiz attitude of a bro cream commercial. And Mark Tracy, who played the uh, the stage manager and, and, and several other characters from that show uh just like typified the 50s so it was it was just it was like being immersed in an episode of that uh or in my case immersed uh <laughs> i couldn't pass it up so i uh, and you know i i always i always liked william frawley and his grumpy character fred mertz so i was able to inhabit that it took me all the way to um jamestown new york where where now the national comedy center is because that's where they celebrate Lucille Ball and Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz together and the work that they've done. And that started a comedy festival years ago that had a heavy I Love Lucy uh, focus. But now there's a heavy focus on uh, getting opportunities for young comics and also celebrating icons in the industry. I, you know, I can't, I, they, they just released some of the comics that are going to be at next year's celebration which is not that far off i think it's in june or july or maybe august it's usually in the summertime i'm not that far from jamestown new york i'm only a couple hours from buffalo so i, oh. I should i should check that out yeah so maybe you maybe absolutely should i've, I've yeah. heard people who have been there have an amazing experience my buddy rich tallarico who was a writer on mad tv and Saturday night live and key and peel and all these things he had a chance to visit there recently he really enjoyed it Okay, definitely. And finally, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, Bill, you've been great with me and giving me more than 45 minutes. I really appreciate it. My what friend. advice What advice uh, for those watching or listening later on would you give to people looking to pursue a career in the comedy industry, acting industry, or even looking to be a writer? And where can they find your website for the uh, improv uh I think trick the improv trick, which is my company where I teach uh, corporations and organizations how to use improv skills to, to facilitate better communication. It's the improv trick.com. And also if, if, if they couldn't figure out how to spell, we can too, W E K N T U.org, they can go to improv trick and they'll find a link through there for we can to kids as well. Um, and my advice would be that you can do it. You have to set your mind to it. You have to set goals. You have to set uh, ideas of where where you want to work in this industry and how you want to do it. But anytime you come up against a door that seems like it's a door that's closed to you, it's an opportunity to knock. It's an opportunity to gain new skills and figure out what's going to get me through that door. There are fortunately more opportunities opening up for for um, for for everybody, for more diverse groups, for more diverse audiences and performers, people of color, more, uh, more opportunities for women. And so if, if anybody feels as though they're being shut out, the industry kind of tends to, to do that. And you, you have to push a little bit harder, but there are people out there who are looking to help you uh, gain a voice. There are programs with every studio that, that, that at least attempts to, help people uh, climb up through the ranks and learn more about the industry and do it. So it's doable. You have to take the first steps and you have to start connecting with people. And, and you should know that people want to help. They may not have all the time in the world to help out, but people truly do want to help. They want to help you achieve your goals. They want to help 
bring more funny into the universe or more stories into the universe and definitely more voices, new voices and diverse voices. Well said, Bill. And uh, I've had a lot of help and uh, a lot of guests that I never thought would give me the time of day have come on and been really great with me. And uh, I just love storytelling. And, and that's what this is. And uh, I love learning. And uh, Bill, I want to say thank you so much for coming on uh, season five, episode 52 today. And I did have your last name right, Bill Cott. You did. You got it. Okay, because I always try to pride myself on getting my uh, guest name right. And if I'm not sure, I will ask them ahead of time as well. It's very important. I used to do that as a bank teller. I would I, well, I, I, would, I would take a stab at it if I thought it was a, a name that I, that I could, you know, try to fake my way into it. But I would always ask, is that right? And uh, people will tell you, you know, you have to make a risk and, you know, try to try to get it wrong so that you can get it right. And yeah, and you did. C H O T T makes a K sound like Christmas. Definitely. And I will have to check out um, your Netflix series, episode nine of the Jeffrey Dahmer story as well. I will have to check that out this week. You have to get through a lot of blood and guts and gore to get to mine, but I have a really I have a really fun scene that, that doesn't involve any of that. Okay. Well, Bill, I'm gonna let you go, but I, I want to say thanks to Grace Fraga. Because without her, I wouldn't have met you on her podcast show. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on my show and uh, continued success. And if you can give me a little bit about time this afternoon, I will have the audio version downloaded. And I will send you a copy of the video and also the audio of the show as well. I look forward to it. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much, Bill. Have a great rest of the afternoon in uh, California. See ya. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed episode season five, episode 52 with Bill Cott, an actor, comedian and writer uh, based out of the L.A. Los Angeles, or sorry, the Los Angeles, California area. And he's originally from St. Louis, Missouri as well. And uh, yeah, check out his uh, performance on Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer show on the Netflix series, um, episode nine as well. Guys, just to let you know, the next live with CDP Sports Talk, sponsored by Barry Cullen Chevrolet, will be Wednesday, May 10th at 3 p.m. Eastern with singer-songwriter Gracie Jett from Owen Sound, Ontario. She's also a nurse as well, and it is Nurses Week here in Ontario, and she's written a new song that's going to be released uh, tomorrow on Spotify called Nightingale. So she's going to premiere the, her song on Live with CDP on Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern. Again, I want to say thank you to my guest, Bill Cott, for coming in today. Really appreciate him giving us some time as well. And also, guys, NHL tonight, 8.30. We've got Vegas at Edmonton. That series is tied at 1-1. Major League Baseball tonight, 6 o'clock, the Tigers and Cleveland Guardians. And the NBA playoffs tonight, we have the New York Knicks at Miami. Miami's up two games to one in that series. And also Golden State at the Lakers, and the Lakers are up 2-1 to one as well. And last night, Florida stunned the Leafs 3-2 to two in overtime. And now Florida is one win away from advancing to the Eastern Conference Final for the first time since 1996. And uh, disappointing for Leaf fans who thought this was going to be an easy series uh, against Florida, who are playing really great right now as well. And we're going to wrap up this podcast show soon. Uh, as always, guys, live with CDP Sports Talk, a weekly sports and entertainment talk show.
hosted by yours truly, Chris Palme, is now on weeknights uh, at 8 p.m. Eastern on radio station WQEE 99.1 FM, The Key, the home of Southern sports and talk, the heartbeat of Atlanta. And a shout out to Ryan O'Neill for bringing uh, me on his radio station. Live with CDP Sports Talk is also live streamed on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, and LinkedIn. And thank you to everybody for watching this today on my live stream as well. My website, as always, guys, is beacons.ai slash Chris D. Pome. Live with CDP Sports Talk is sponsored by Barry Cullen Chevrolet dealership at 905 Woodlawn Road West in the Gulf Auto Mall. Check out barrycullen.com for the newest selection of new and pre-owned GM vehicles. Also, guys, the 2023 Chevy Equinox, 3.99% financing up to 60 months. Eligible Costco members can receive a $750 bonus on select SUVs. So just contact Barry Collins Chevrolet at their website, which I mentioned, or 519-824-0210, or email info at barrycollin.com as well. You guys can also follow me on TikTok at Live with CDP. I post a lot of content there as well. StreamYard is the official live stream provider of Live with CDP Sports Talk. If you're into webinars or podcasting, I would check out StreamYard.com as well. Finally, guys, we're going to wrap this up. Live with CDP Sports Talk, uh, the audio version is available on these platforms. iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Anchor FM, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, Castbox, LinkedIn, Stitcher, and tuned in, and also on weeknights at 8 p.m. Eastern on WQEE 99.1 FM in Metro Atlanta as well. Also, you can email or text me at live with CDP Sports Talk at cpame19 at gmail.com or text the show at 519-820-7188. Again, thank you so much to Bill Cott, who is an actor an actor, comedian, and writer, originally from St. Louis, Missouri, and now out in Los Angeles. And uh, please check out his websites as well. He is on Instagram. He's on Twitter. He's on Facebook as well. And he does have uh, a Linktree page too, a Linktree slash Bill Cott. That's Linktree slash Bill Cott as well. All his works there as well. And that's about it, guys. Uh, uh, I'm really looking forward to live episode 53 again this Wednesday, May 10th at 3 p.m. Eastern with my special guest, Gracie Jett, who is a singer, songwriter, and a nurse from Owen Sound, Ontario. And she's going to be debuting her uh, new single, uh, Nightingale, in honor of Nurses Week here in Ontario. I hope everybody has a great night. Thank you to everybody watching this live streamed and on my audio platforms and WQEE 99.1 FM. And also thank you to Barry Collins Chevrolet for sponsoring this show as well. I hope you guys all have a great evening and we'll see you Wednesday at 3 p.m. with Gracie Jett talking about her music career and her latest song, uh, Nightingale. Have a great night, everybody. And again, thank you to Bill Cott for coming on live with CDP Sports Talk. Good afternoon and good evening, everybody.